Several weeks ago, it was a Wednesday morning, and on Wednesday mornings, my family does typically is there's women's Bible study here, and so I will come to work a little bit earlier, and then eventually my wife brings the children, and they're here, and they're checked in, and, and they're watched, and she comes, and she attends Bible study. This was a little bit of a different day, and I had told one of my boys that something special was going to happen. I was actually going to come down after I'd wrapped up a few things and grab him and, and, and take him out of childcare so we could do something special. So the day happens, I get pulled into a meeting, the rest of the day happens, I get home, and my wife uh, greets me and lets me know that my son had waited for almost an hour at the door of his classroom, telling his teacher, no, my dad's coming. He's coming. And I didn't come. You can imagine the sense of failure that comes with that, right? And I know all of us have been there at some point, especially as a, if, if you're a parent. As a parent, you want your word to be true. You want to be faithful as a friend, as a spouse, as a coworker. You want to be dependent and reliable. And at, at some point, all of us have thought what I felt in that moment and what I verbalized in the conversation with both my wife and my son, which is, what do I got to do to make this right? How do I make it right? This has happened in friendships. How do I make this right? You've, you've wronged your spouse. How do I make this right? And the reason I start here is because today we're in Galatians chapter 3, and at the heart of Paul's letter to Galatia is this question. How do things get made right? But it's not between you and between a coworker or a friend or a roommate or a spouse or a child or a parent. How do things get made right between you and God? And Andy Needham shared last week, talked about being justified not by the law, but by faith. That we are made right with God, that we are justified, we're declared not guilty in a legal, forensic sense. We are made right in God's eyes based on faith. But the Judaizers had worked their way into the church in Galatia and were teaching that you needed Jesus plus the law, the festivals, the dietary restrictions, whatever. And Andy, I love the way that he put it. He said, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so today, we continue in Galatians chapter 3 as Paul continues to drive this point home. And he pivots in his argument a little bit in a more tangible way. So open up to Galatians 3. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our praises. You are worthy of our worship. And we are here because of you. We are here because of what you have done. And so as we learn about you. Holy Spirit, would you encounter our hearts? Would you push us into awe and marvel? Holy Spirit, would you challenge and soften that we would receive, that you would shape us, conform us into the image of Christ? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 3. I'm going to start reading. Paul starts off. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? All right, he starts soft. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Some of your translations use the word bewitched. He's, he's, he ain't pulling any punches. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law 
or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing? The works of the law. Or is it by believing what you heard? The first point for us this morning is that the Spirit is a gift of faith and not a reward of the law. And we're going to start this morning with this first point at looking at the Holy Spirit together, not based on an argument explicitly stated by the text, but based on the argument Paul is assuming and the rhetorical questions that he's asking. Because that's how Paul's doing it. And the Spirit is a gift of faith, not a reward. And if the Spirit is a gift of faith, then how much more should, is salvation? Justification, a gift of faith, not a reward of the law. Ephesians 1.13, in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Now, Paul, he's pivoting his argument from something conceptual to something a little bit more tangible. He's going from talking about legal status, justification, justified, to talking about a gift received. So just imagine with me for a moment, you are an orphan and you're really good at cleaning and you are adopted into a home. And in that home, you like to clean, you're great at cleaning, so you continue to clean. And even though your adopted parents paid the price to adopt you, they brought you in because they love you, you are an object of their affections. And they want you. You work it into your mind that the only reason you're there, the only reason they got, you got there is because of how well you clean, because of what you can do. In fact, the only reason they're keeping you there is because you continue to clean. And your parents try to explain to you, no, you're not here because of what you've done. You're here because of what we did, because of what we want, and because of how we love. And it doesn't sink in. And so the parents take you to the bedroom and they point at the really nice bed that they got you and they, they point at the toys that they got for you and they ask this rhetorical question. How much did you have to work to buy all of this stuff? Or did we buy it? This is what Paul's doing with the Spirit. He's going from this concept of you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith, to you have the Spirit. You've seen it manifest. You've seen the Holy Spirit do powerful. This is a gift from God. Tell me, did you get the Spirit? Did you get this gift based on what you did, based on works, or based on faith in what Christ has done? He's trying to access a more tangible reality in their life. And the answer in that situation would be you were a part of the family, not because of what you did, but because your parents did whatever it took. This is Paul's new argument. He's trying to show again, the law can't make us right with God. It cannot justify us. Only faith can. Now, John Piper, he, he, he writes this to kind of poke at our tendency to go back to works. If you were the orphan, your tendency to rely on your cleaning to be a part of the family, us, our tendency to do good things in order to be in God's affections. 
he gets at this here. He says, the cross kills the independent, self-reliant, insubordinate me. And the cross quickens a new me who lives only by faith and the all-sufficiency of Christ. Never looks to itself with any expectancy of power or virtue. Therefore, when we or the Galatians follow the Judaizers and erect the law as a ladder to heaven on which to demonstrate our contribution of will or effort, we nullify the grace of God. We remove the stumbling block of the cross and we show that we are bewitched, foolish. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been around a little while, you may nod your head at this and this, this, this makes sense. This all sounds good. But one of the things that Paul in these first several verses gets at and assumes in order to get at this argument is the reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit. He bakes it in as an assumption, but I wanna unpack it for us just a little bit before we get to more justification and curses and all that kind of stuff. I wanna unpack it a little bit because this isn't an assumption that we bake into a lot of our Christian living. For some reason, for many of us, the Holy Spirit is relegated to some rarely visited corner of our lives. We worship a Trinitarian God. We do not worship a God that is merely Father, merely Father or Son, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul, he talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. In Galatians, he mentions the Holy Spirit 18 times. The Father's mentioned five times. Christ, the word Christ, 38, Jesus, 17. So yeah, Jesus and Christ happens a lot, but if you were to compare proportionate how much the Holy Spirit is a part of your vernacular, chances are it doesn't measure up. I could say the same for myself. And so we need to get back to focusing and bringing to the forefront the role of the Spirit in our lives. If this text is gonna make any sense to us. I have an illustration for you. One of the ways you can think about this, think about the Christian life. A godly life is like a race. Johnny in his call to worship, he read Hebrews chapter 12 and he said, he talked about cloud of witnesses, us finishing the race with our eyes focused on Jesus. Picture with me, a NASCAR race. Now I've actually never watched NASCAR. Closest I've got to that is the movie Cars. And so <laughs> if I say something that's heresy, you can judge me for that. But I just want you to imagine with me a NASCAR race that you have the crew chief is, is, is God the Father, okay? There will be heresy baked in here somewhere if you look for it. But hear me on what I'm trying to say. The crew chief is like God the Father, and then the one driving the car is God the Son, Jesus, and he wins the race, and he's victorious. And then, and then God the Holy Spirit is, is, is the mechanic. And so what happens? Jesus wins the race, and he is exalted. And then we come in. And it's our turn to do the race. And we go to God the Father because he was the one that gave instructions to the Son. Instruct me like you instructed the Son. And then we go to Jesus. We go to the driver. You are fantastic. You are the best. How do I do what you do? And we talk about our issues. My tires struggle to get around the turns. I'm having oil problems. I can't get enough speed on the straightaway. And you could just imagine what the crew chief and what the driver would say. Have you talked to the mechanic? This is our problem. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be the one gifted to us to empower us. 
to guide us, to comfort us. I'm struggling to be patient with my kids. I'm harsh with my roommate. I'm finding difficult to be sacrificially generous. We say, I just want to be like Jesus. Who did he give it, give you to make that happen? And when was the last time you went to him? Again, the spirit that guides, that empowers, that counsels, that brings peace in the midst of trial and hope in the midst of despair. We gotta remember the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so Paul, he asks another rhetorical question. He builds, he keeps going with the rhetoric. He says, did the spirit start and the flesh finish? What does this rhetorical question demand be true? Again, what is Paul assuming in order to ask this question? That the spirit starts and that the spirit finishes. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Doug Moo writes, faith is the means not only of entering into relationship with God, but also of maintaining that relationship and of confirming that relationship on the day of judgment. Of course, it is not faith in and of itself that has the power, it is because faith connects the believer to Christ in whose vindication the believer shares. Paul is coming against this idea that the Holy Spirit would just get you going and that you would take over from there. But the Holy Spirit is not meant to be a one-time encounter. The Holy Spirit shouldn't be reduced down merely to a series of encounters. Because on the one side, you have people who pretty much ignore the Holy Spirit. And then on the other side, sometimes you have people who all they want are these emotionally high, spiritually high encounters with the Holy Spirit. It's the only time they go to the Holy Spirit is for those which is a lot like me only talking to my wife when I want to have sex. The Holy Spirit isn't just there to have an encounter, but to sustain you through the daily grind of life. Friday, I spent four hours on a building project in my backyard and came in a, two giant boxes and we're building something and he pulled out all the tools and my boys got really excited and they wanted to join and my two oldest are finally at the age where they can be kind of helpful. And, and so we're putting, kind of putting things together and you know, you pull out the little, the really dumb Allen wrench they give you that you just, you know, would, would double the time that you need. So we get the power drill out and my boys, they just get glued when the power drill comes out. That is just so exciting for them. And they just really wanted to use it. And so we got the stuff set up and I got, um, I, I got a screw kind of put in with all the other pieces there and, and I, I'm standing behind my son and we got the drill, and, 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 and I'm holding it, and he's holding it. He's got his finger wrapped around the trigger, and, and we're, we're, we're there. And I put the drill bit so that it's in the screw. He's positioned. He's there. And I let go, and I step back, and he goes. And immediately, he begins stripping the screw. <laughs> because he didn't have the strength to hold it in the stable way it needed, and at the same time to push the drill bit with the pressure that it needed into the screw and to pull the trigger in the way it needed to be pulled. He couldn't do it. And so I came behind him and I put my hands on the drill and I held it steady and I put it back in the screw and he had his finger on the, on the trigger and I held it, I stabilized it and I pushed it and then I walked him through and I said, okay, go. Oh, 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 a little more. Oh, a little bit more. Oh, almost there. And he finished screwing it in. I hate to break this to you, 
You are not meant to be pulling the trigger of a godly life on your own. Because your weakness and inability and your flesh will just lead you to mess it up over and over and over again. Which is why we constantly invite the Holy Spirit who didn't just start, but who finishes into our life. And as we face decisions, big and small, what am I going to do with this whole house decision? I don't want to make the decision, God, unless your hands are on it. And I don't want to pull the trigger on this whole school situation unless your hands are on it. And I don't want to pull the trigger on this whole work situation unless your hands are on it. And I definitely don't want to start disciplining my kids right now because I feel like kicking them in the face unless your hands are on it. I've never kicked a child in the face, I promise. <laughs> From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, the Holy Spirit there to guide you and to be the hands that guide and that put things right where they need to be so that when you pull the trigger, it happens as it's supposed to. That's why we constantly invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. And Paul asked, did you start with the flesh and now finishing in the Spirit? And the answer is no. Because I simply can't live a God-honoring life apart from the Spirit. I can't stand justified before God apart from the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift of faith, not a reward of the law. It's continuing in verse 6. Just like Abraham who believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, by faith and proclaiming the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Next, Israel had the law, but Abraham had faith. Israel had the law, Abraham had faith. And we get ushered into the family of Abraham somehow. I wanna back up for a moment for those a little bit newer to scripture. Because in the opening chapters of Genesis, God created man, things were good, and humanity rebelled against God. And when you rebel against a holy and perfect God, it creates distance. And what happens when distance occurs between us and our source of life? Death, brokenness, sickness, chaos. And so God made a promise then and there that he would send someone to crush the snake that will over overcome Satan, sin, and death in this world, but by doing so would be wounded. That was a promise made in the early chapters of Genesis. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God initiates a relationship with a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And in Abram, he continues this promise because he tells Abraham that through you the nations will be blessed, that this person he promised long ago that would come is gonna come through, he had to come through somewhere. He's gonna come through the line of Abraham. And we get into the kind of nooks and crannies of Abraham's life, and we get focused on very particular characters as we lead to Israel. We've got a few up here. We see first Abraham, and we see his kids that we know so well. I know it's small, I'll read them. Isaac and Ishmael. But did you know Abraham had a bunch of other kids? Sorry, not gonna read those. And then we usually jump straight to Isaac. But did you know Ishmael had 12 kids? Did you learn about that in Sunday school? And of course, we learned about Isaac's two boys, Jacob and Esau. 
But we don't talk often about Esau going off and having a bunch of his own kids. But he did. And we learn about Jacob, who would become Israel. His descendants would ultimately become the tribes of Israel. And it's his descendants who received the law. And so we think of these, these are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see those names happening all through scriptures, defining people and God kind of carrying out and unfolding his promises to his creation. But the law given to them could not save. Nandy talked about that last week. But if it couldn't save, what was the point? Gary's gonna get into it more next week. But one of the points of the law was to highlight, to make us aware of sin. You ever watch one of those CSI shows and you know they walk into a place and perhaps it could look totally pristine, totally nice, and then the lights go out and the black light comes up and there's just spots everywhere. Nasty, so I'm going to make a mess. That's the point of the law. That the law comes in and it highlights just how much in need of a savior you are by pointing out how much sin is in your life. That's what the law did. It magnified that sin, it pointed that sin, it created an awareness of sin. But God's promise was to conquer that sin, to take away that sin, not just for Israel, but for the world. God's promise to Abraham was to bless all nations, not just Israel. And in John chapter one, verse 11, it says, he came to his own. This is Jesus, talking about Jesus coming to the Jews. Came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. God's promise was through Abraham was to bless the nations. And he's talking about in Galatians what it is to become a part of God's family. And you don't become a part of God's family based on the blood you share, based on the blood they shared. You become a part of God's family based on the blood that Jesus shed. And that's different. And that's far more powerful. It wasn't a festival, a dietary restriction that made them a part of God's family. Paul could trace it back to what God's intentions were from the beginning. And that's what he does in the text. Before the law was even given, that the nations will be blessed. And like Abraham, they would have the righteousness credited to them based on faith. Not based on what they could do, but on in whom they would trust. Moving on. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. The law is about what you can do, not about in whom you can trust. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Pause there for just a moment. The Talmud, Jewish commentary on the law, comes a little bit later. They talk about how there's four approved kinds of execution that the Israelites could carry out and they were to be followed by being stripped up on a tree. 
but they couldn't let you hang there past nighttime. They would take you down so that the land would not become unclean. Now, this was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. It was written before crucifixion as a, as a way of, 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 of torture and as a way of uh, killing was invented. And so it's so interesting the way that God works because he talked about how he would be hung on a tree on curse, pointing to the tree that Jesus would hang on, that God in the plan from the beginning knew that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh, that he would become human, that he would take on our nature, live the perfect life we couldn't and die the death we deserve in an excruciating fashion on the cross. That word excruciating comes from the word crux and cross. That that was always part of the plan. Jesus was never gonna come and be drowned. He was never gonna be come and fed to wild beasts. He was gonna come and bear his shame and guilt publicly in his nakedness before people when he would be mocked and shamed. That that was always a part of the plan. God had a plan. Verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And I just love, especially in a culture that's not very supernatural, that tends to be vaguely spiritual, right, but extremely naturalistic. Such a, America is such a weird place culturally that here, it says the promise of the blessing would come to the Gentiles. What's the promise for the Gentiles through Christ? Elsewhere, it would say eternal life, that you're saved so that what, so you can enjoy Jesus, so you can have God, so you can have joy and satisfaction, so you can go to heaven. What's, what's the answer? What's the promise? What's the purpose here? You get the spirit. Not to be taken for granted. The law isn't based on faith. I'm sorry. The law isn't based on faith. The law is based on what you can do. And some of us like that. Some of us want the check boxes. Some of us live by the check boxes. But the point of the law is that you can't check all the boxes. And we try. You know, we think through, man, I prayed this morning. I complimented my spouse like three times. I, uh, maybe two, two and a half. One of them was a little backhanded, so I get a little credit. I was patient at work, you know, went a whole 30 minutes before I exploded on that person. There was a lot of patience. I went to church. I mean, I left early, but I went. This is all tongue in cheek, right? We, we do check boxes and our lists are all different. You can come up with whatever your standard of goodness is and you can check the boxes. Feeling good at the end of the day. But the whole point that the law Point, the, the law is that black light that shows all the mess that you can't handle on your own, that you can't clean up on your own. And the law, it's just not based on faith. It's based on what you can do. But because you can't do it all, you're cursed under the law. But the mission of the, cur of the cross is to absorb the curse. In, Genesis, in Deuteronomy 28, Gary preached on this. And when he preached on it, he actually looked forward to Galatians, where we are now. And so I'm in Galatians. I'm going to look back at it. And it's a whole chapter about curses. 
And so you can go another time. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. It's the second half of the chapter. It gets weird. It gets offensive. There's a lot of stuff. You're like, man, that's nasty. And it reminds you, yeah, sin is nasty. But verse 20, it says, the Lord, this is to people who abandon God, who turn away from God. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, rebuke you and everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish. So people curse deserve because of the wickedness of your actions. He says in 32, your sons and daughters will be given to another people while your eyes grow weary looking for them every day, but you will be powerless to do, it, to do anything. So people who are cursed deserve. You will become an object of horror, scorn, and ridicule among the peoples where God will drive you. Verse 47, because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and a cheerful heart, even though you had an abundance of everything, you will serve your enemies the Lord will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and a lack of everything. He will place an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation from far away, the ends of the earth, to swoop down on you like an eagle. It's a brutal picture of what it means to be cursed of what a cursed people deserve. And yet here it says, Jesus became the curse. Elsewhere, Paul writes that Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now it, said, it didn't say he became a sinner, but the magnitude of the sin born in him made it possible for Paul to use such intense phrases. And that's your sin that's making this possible. It's my sin that makes this possible. This, these intense phrases that he's using to describe this situation. Every lie uttered, every promise broken, every covetous thought as you've walked through a store or scrolled through Instagram, all the hurt you've caused and the relationships you've broken, your impatience with your friends, your boss, your spouse, your harshness with your children, every addiction you've given yourself over to, every time you've held stingily to your money for your kingdom, your power, your influence, or your vanity, every failure of you to love as God loves. And the compounding effect of all that sin in our lives, multiplied by the lives of human history, gives us a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, not just barren like an extra heavy backpack, but becoming the very thing that is an utter abomination to God. He became sin, not a sinner, sin. He became the curse and God unleashed his judgment on Jesus with orders of magnitude that you and I cannot possibly fathom with waves of wrath so unimaginably immense, the fury of his righteous anger so incomprehensibly weighty that it would make the explosion of a star seem like a third graders volcano experiment. Jesus faced that, not us. And it's just a box you're not capable of checking. The problem is every time we go for the check boxes, we kind of make it look like as if everything Jesus went through just wasn't enough for you. We ask, what else do I have to do? Our answer is there's nothing left to be done. Jesus did it all. Why? That the nations, that you would be blessed. Why? So that you would be his. That you would have his promised spirit. And we open with this morning with the question, you know, what do I do to make it right? We felt the weight of that question, haven't we? What do I do to make it right? 
and one of the worst possible answers, and I know when you've been in a place in which there just wasn't, there just wasn't a thing you could do, you felt this, it's a hard answer. One of the hardest answers you can get is, there's nothing you can do. But that answer, while hard, at the same time can be just as much, if not more beautiful, to those who trust in Jesus. Because while we can't, he could, and he did. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move powerfully in our midst, that you would move powerfully in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships. Help us to conform into the image of Jesus. Help us to love like Jesus. Jesus, you are good and you are worthy. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives would be honoring to you and to the Father. Would you show us, would you teach us what it looks like for us? God in heaven, show us and teach us what this looks like for us. May we appreciate you in your fullness. May we seek to know you truly and to love you deeply. And may we carry and lean on you. May we lean on you in all the things small and great as we go through our week. In Jesus' name we pray.